Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the elders at Resurrection Church. So glad you're with us. Uh, church family, can we welcome our visitors this morning? <clears throat> We get into the text this morning, I'll be reading the, the sermon text in Luke. It'll be uh, chapter 15 if you want to turn there that quick. Um, it's especially important to turn there this morning, um, and you'll find out soon enough. But Luke chapter 15, <clears throat> and I want to start reading verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and his, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. <clears throat> and he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thank you, Andy. Good morning, everybody. Um, you might be wondering, you should be wondering, why it is that Andy started reading with verse 11 and not verse 1. Because we left off at the end of chapter 14 last week, right? So let, let me say this about why we did, why we did that. Um, when the elders at rest teach, we have two goals in mind. Number one is, we obviously, we want to help you see the truth in each text that we teach. 
We teach straight through books of the Bible because we want you to be able to see what's there. Here's the second goal. We want you to know and understand that you, on your own, can read Scripture attentively and see what's there. So in one sense, we are not only teaching, but we are equipping when we do this. And so today, this was just too good an opportunity to pass up to help you um, consider good Bible reading habits that are going to help you see what's there in the text. If you carefully examine, how many of you took Donnie's challenge and read Luke 15 several times this week? Okay, good. Lots of you did. As you read Luke 15 and you examine it carefully, here's what you should notice. We've obviously got a bunch of parables in this chapter, but those parables are situated within a narrative, an account of something that actually happened. This is how I prepare to teach, how all the elders prepare to teach, is I first consider, what is it that I'm reading? Well, I'm reading a narrative, but inserted into this narrative is some parables. And parables are kind of like poetical literature, right? I want to get the feel of those. We've talked about parables a lot. You want to get the simple point of the parable. But the fact that these parables are situated within a narrative, that ought to catch my attention. What's the context in which this is happening? And so as I considered that, I look at the beginning of the parable of the prodigal son, which is a very familiar parable, right? Can I just tell you this? Familiarity is probably the worst enemy to good Bible reading. And, and here's the second, a close second to it, is the chapter and section headings in your Bible. I have a good friend who's a really good Bible reader who took white out and whited out every one of the headings in his Bible. They are not inspired. They are not inspired. They were added after the fact. And so if you open your Bible to Luke chapter 15, one of the first things you might see is the heading, the parable of the prodigal son, to which you might go, oh, I know that. And even if you go on to read it again, you might not pay careful attention to it. But if you stop and you think, okay, this is a parable situated within a narrative. Let me look at that closely and make sure I understand the context in which Jesus told this. So if I look at the first few words of the parable in verse 11, what do I see? Look at your Bibles. What's the first phrase? And he said, huh, this is in a narrative. Something that actually happened. There's a context in which Jesus told it. And the first word of the parable of the prodigal is and. I must not be at the beginning. So let's back up. And when I back up, what do I see? Another parable. The parable of the lost coin, which begins in verse 8. And how does that verse start? Or, I'm still not at the beginning. So, I back up just a little bit and I realize, oh, there's another parable and another familiar parable. The parable of the lost sheep. You know that parable, right? Guy leaves the 99, it's the parable of the dumb shepherd. <laughs> he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And how does that parable start in verse 3? So, I'm still not at the beginning. Go to verse 1. This is important. I'm not playing games with you. This is important when you read your Bible. Pay attention to the details. 
Because I, if I, how many of you understand, if we're going to understand the, the powerful truth that the parable of the prodigal reveals, we've got to understand why it is that Jesus told it. So here's why, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled or murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the setting. There's a question that's been posed. There, there are people that are drawing near to this Jesus, namely sinners and tax collectors. We know who those people are. Tax collectors are Jewish traitors. They are hated. We cannot overstate how much animosity Jews would have for tax collectors. They would have executed them if Rome would allow them. They collect money for Rome. They get rich by extorting their fellow Jews. Sinners is kind of a catch-all category for anybody and everybody who either refused to adhere to the ceremonial religious systems of the day and or were engaged in outright sin. Everybody that was, could not be counted among the righteous were called sinners. And these people are drawing near. And Jesus is welcoming them. And he's eating with them. Now, here's what's odd about this to me. Not the main point of the text, but it's interesting. If you think about the kinds of things that Jesus has been saying recently in the Gospel of Luke, this is just odd. Jesus has been saying things like this, repent or perish. He's been saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, there's only one door and it's narrow and you better strive or agonize over entering through that narrow door. And then last week, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, brothers, sisters, children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If someone doesn't renounce all that he has, give up all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. That doesn't sound like a great church growth strategy to me. Yet these people are pressing into him. And the question is raised by the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? Why are you eating with them? You sh implication, you should be eating with us. You, we're the religious people. These are socio-religious outcasts, Jesus. Why are you eating with them? And before we turn our noses up at the Pharisees and scribes, personally, if, if I were there, if you were there, I think we'd be asking the same question. It's not why do they want to be with Jesus. It's Jesus. Why do you welcome them? Why do you entertain them? Why are you dining with them? That's the question. And so here's how Jesus responds. Three parables. Three verses to one song. One song that answers one big question. Jesus, why do you hang out with the people you hang out with? That's what this whole chapter is about. And you might just pause for a minute. We're not ready to make application yet from our text. But you might just pause for a minute and think to yourself, ask yourself, why does Jesus hang out with me? Why would he, we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. 
We're going to receive communion. We're going to come to his table. We're going to eat with him. Why in the world would he welcome us as we draw near to him? How does he feel about that? And how should the Pharisees and scribes feel about that? This is why Jesus tells all three parables, three verses to one song. So let's take the first two parables, okay? Let's go back to verse three. I'm going to read the parables back to back. Verses three to six. Jesus, why do you hang out with the people you hang out with? So, verse three, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Let's read the second parable. Skip to verse eight. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently, seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Let's consider the common elements in the two parables. Very simple, right? You don't have to go to seminary to see this. Full disclosure, I've never been to seminary. I've been to Bible college, but not seminary, okay? So I can honestly tell you, you don't have to go to seminary to see this. <laughs> Three common elements. Something is lost, right? Here's common element number two. Somebody's on the hunt. Somebody's searching. And then here's common element number three. Rejoicing. And not just rejoicing by the person who found what they were looking for that was lost, but an invitation to friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. You can already see it, can't you? Why is Jesus hanging out with the people he's hanging out with? He's on the hunt for that which is his that was lost. And how does he feel? It, perhaps... The table in question in Luke 15, sinners and tax collectors drawing near to him, he's welcoming them, he's eating with them. Perhaps at that table in question, Jesus has found some of his that were lost. And how does Jesus feel about that? I mean, and listen, don't dumb that joy down. This is exuberant rejoicing. I so appreciate what you said about behold him today because I was getting frustrated with that song. I love that song, but it says all these amazing things about Jesus and then tells me to be still. Over and over, does it not? Over and over again. But that was so helpful for Stephen to say to us, this is not about necessarily being physically still, but being focused on him, right? Because the appropriate response to that song is Jesus, son of God, Messiah, right? How does Jesus feel about finding that which is his that was lost? He's ecstatic about it. And not only is he having joy, but there's an invitation to rejoice with me. Look at verse 7, the end of the parable of the sheep. Just so I tell you, 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Skip down to verse 10. Into the parable of the lost coin. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's where it ends. Over one sinner who repents. Sorry. I started to read verse 7 again. What's the point? When you find what is yours that was lost, you have joy. And when you have that kind of joy, it is right and appropriate for you to invite others by saying, rejoice with me. Just a few years ago, Mary called me in tears. Now, Emily's here this morning, and you might have noticed she had to hold her mic with her right hand, not her left hand, because there's something weighty on her left hand this morning. We could offer a congratulations to Emily and Stefan. They're engaged this morning, right? Well, a couple of few years ago, Mary calls me, and she's in tears because she's, this is what she says, I've lost my engagement ring. She had this habit of taking it off before she went to the gym and leaving it at home. But on this one particular day, she forgot to take it off, and she went to the gym and got in the locker room, I guess, and realized you still had your ring on, took it off, put it in her bag. And somehow, between taking it off, putting it in her bag, and getting done with her workout, that ring fell out of her bag. She got home and realized, I don't have my ring. She called the gym. She made inquiries. Nobody's seen it. All hope was lost. I don't know how many inquiries she made, but it, it had to be at least a couple and it was just a disaster. But then one day she stopped by Gold's Gym, just on a whim, went in there, asked the guy behind the counter, told him the story, asked him if anybody had found a ring, and he goes, oh yeah. Turns around, pulls the ring out of a drawer, and hands it to her. Guess what Mary did? She broke down into tears of joy. Guess what the big burly guy behind the counter at Gold's did? He broke down into tears of joy. He rejoiced with her. Why? Because when you find that which is yours that is lost, particularly when it's very valuable to you, you have great joy. And the appropriate response is to rejoice with me. Now, you might be saying at this point, okay, I got it. Two parables, Jesus. I get the point. Why the third parable? Why, why tell the third parable? Let me make a couple of suggestions. One, I think the third parable makes this more personal because Jesus is not on the hunt for coins or literal sheep. He's on the hunt for people, okay? So that, that might be one reason why we need the third parable. A, third, a second reason would be um, coins and sheep are lost geographically. People are lost spiritually and... Perhaps the third parable hints at that. I think both of those are true, but here's what I think the primary reason we get the third parable is there's an emotional escalation that takes place in the third parable as we move from talking about coins and sheep to a father with two sons, okay? So let's read the parable again, and I'm going to just make some observations about how we should feel about that, how we should feel about this parable. Let's go back to Luke 15, 
starting in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 19 to start, okay? You know what? I skipped some things, but I'm running out of time. Let me say this real quick. Jesus is not giving evangelistic instructions here. That's not the point of this. The point of this is not Jesus giving us some cryptic uh, way to, to understand that what we should do evangelistically is have dinners with unsaved people. That, that might be a good thing to do. I, I certainly don't think the Bible would tell us not to do that. Okay, Hang out with people in the hopes that Jesus might draw them to himself. Absolutely, but that's not why Jesus tells the parable. Here's another reason Jesus doesn't tell the parable. I don't think this is instructions about repentance. If this were instructions about repentance, this would be a horrible example. Because as we're going to see, the son, the prodigal son, doesn't even get halfway through his prepared speech before the father says, wait, we're celebrating. It's a terrible example of repentance. Not that repentance is not in view here, or that when Jesus finds his people, they won't repent. Right? But that's not the primary point of the parable. Remember, as we read this, the question at hand is, why, Jesus, do you hang out with those people? And we need to personalize that. Say, Jesus, why do you hang out with us? Okay? Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs." And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here's what you should feel when you read that. The lostness of the son. Feel the lostness of the son. Don't over-theologize the details. Why does Jesus give all these details? Because we're meant to feel just how lost this guy is. He gets his inheritance. He squanders it all away on riotous living, reckless living. That's what the word prodigal means. And when he finally comes to his senses, he's in a pig field eating pig food. At that point, the Jews listening to Jesus would have gagged. Jews and pigs don't get along. You with me? This far country was not still in Israel where he was. Jews don't farm pigs. He's farming pigs, and he's eating the pig food in order to survive. Jesus, why tell us this? Because, listen, it's Jesus' joy that we're after, right? When the shepherd found the lost sheep, whose joy did the friends and neighbors join in on? 
The shepherds. When the woman found her lost coin, whose joy did the friends and neighbors join in on? Her joy. When Mary found her engagement ring, whose joy did the man behind the counter at Gold's gym step into? Mary's joy, right? So whose joy are we after? Are y'all with me? Jesus. Come on. Whose joy are we after? Jesus's. Thank you. We're after Jesus's joy. And just how great is that joy? Well, if we're going to understand that, The magnitude of Jesus' joy in the finding is predicated upon the despair of the lostness. So just how lost is this son? He might as well be dead. That's how lost he is. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. I'm so far off my notes. 20 to 23. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, this my son was dead And he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. What are we supposed to feel right there? The joy of the Father. Is this an allegorical reference to God or to Jesus? Perhaps, but don't, don't, here's here's my encouragement to you. Don't wander into those weeds. Just feel the joy of the Father when he finds his son that really, for all intents and purposes, wasn't just lost and found, but was dead and is alive. Let's feast. Are you feeling the escalation of joy? All right, let's keep going. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on here? And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And, And he goes on. But this son of yours who's wasted everything has come home and now you've killed the fattened calf. What are we supposed to feel? A lot of people right here overplay these details. Oh, this is Jesus taking a dig at the Pharisees and scribes right here. Maybe. But that's not primarily why I think Jesus gives this detail in the parable. Here, we're supposed to feel the inappropriateness of the scorn of the other son. In other words, when you read this parable, here's what you should be asking yourself. What's wrong with that guy? It's entirely inappropriate for him to feel this way because his brother, his father's son, was dead and now is alive, was lost and is found. So the inappropriateness of the other son's scorn is meant to accentuate, highlight the appropriate joy of finding that which was his that was lost. In a sense, it's an invitation to this other son to rejoice with me, son, because my son, your brother, 
was lost and now he's found. Certainly, Jesus, in somewhat of an indirect way, is saying to the Pharisees, you could be, should be rejoicing with me. You ask me why I'm eating with these people. You could be, you should be rejoicing with me. Why does Jesus hang out with the people he hangs out with? For the joy of it. Why does he hang out with you? Is there anybody in here who wasn't at one point lost? And now you are. And who found you? People used to talk about, I found the Lord. No, you didn't. He wasn't lost. You were. He found you. And how does he feel about that? And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, how should we feel? Why? Because there's a bunch of lost sheep in here that have been found. There's a bunch of lost coins in here that have been found. There's a bunch of lost sons and daughters in here that have been found. And there's great joy in heaven when that which was lost has been found. Okay? And, and because I know where some people take this, don't think that Jesus' joy in finding you ceased when you got saved. Don't think that Jesus' joy in finding you has somehow gradually declined and is somewhat less than the day that you were born again. That's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is when I find what was mine that was lost, I have great joy. And here's your invitation. Rejoice with me. So we're going to come to the table of the Lord rejoicing this morning because... Everyone in here was once lost and now has been found. You were once dead and now you're alive. And that happened. Jesus has made room for you in the Father's house by by his broken body and his shed blood. Come on, guys. By his broken body and his shed blood. And so as you come to the Lord's table... Certainly there are times we come to the Lord's table, it's appropriate to have a sense of solemnness, to remember Jesus' sacrifice. That is absolutely what we're doing. But I want to encourage you, and Stephen's going to lead us in some worship this morning. I'm not saying you have to do a Texas two-step down the aisle. If you feel that, more power to you. But what I will say is you should come rejoicing. Your salvation is costly. And Jesus paid that. But it is also an opportunity to celebrate. That which was lost has been found. And he did that. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, for these parables. I thank you for inviting us into your joy. And I pray that we would feel that this morning. I pray, the Holy Spirit, that you would awaken us to the joy of our Savior in finding us who were dead and now have been brought to life, who were lost and are now found. Lord, let us taste that joy and feel that joy this morning as we come 
to your table. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as you're able, come, take the elements, hold them till all have received. And we will take together. If you're unable to come forward, our host team members will serve you on their way back through the aisle. So come now as you're able. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith.com where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.